Okay, so the focus of today is of uh, class, can I see somebody's flyer? Class three is on the family and addictions. How do I help my family member? Addictions and the impact on family, what are healthy boundaries and prevention and treatment for couples and family. We will be hitting mostly treatment in the, the 1130 to 1230 class. So uh, we've hit some of it, even just a little bit so far, but um, the focus being, okay, so um, how in particular do you deal with addiction in treatment um, for families? <laughs> so it's a cell phone addiction treatment center. <laughs> the guy walking in is talking on his phone. The guy walking out's got chains on his hands so that he can't what? He can't use the phone. So, you know, yeah. <laughs> and he's got earphones on. Yeah. He's got all kinds of different uh, coping skills stuck in there. Okay. <laughs> if you call that coping. I don't know if that's coping yet, but, you know. Boundaries. Boundaries. He's got some really good boundaries going there. Firm boundaries. External controls. And you know what? In all actuality, that's where it usually has to start. As far as treatment has to start with external controls. So I'm going to talk here for a little bit, and then we're going to have um, – um, a couple come up and share their experiences of um, the impact of um, addiction on the family. And they're actually also going to share um, in the next class on treatment because they've been through a lot of different forms of treatment. So, um, all right. What are some of the issues around addictions in the family? One of the single biggest ones is secrets. Often what you'll see is all the stuff that's been hidden, all the things that aren't. And then you've got kids growing up feeling like they can't say what they've experienced. There's nobody to talk to about it. You're not allowed to talk about that kind of stuff. So family secrets is a huge issue when it comes to addiction. Okay, we've already talked about that quite a bit, the intergenerational emotion management. Family rituals. So um, every Christmas was horrible every year because... That, that's a very common statement in uh, the work that I do. You know, Thanksgiving was horrible because family dis relationships are highly disrupted. There's no healthy modeling. So I, get, I work with couples a lot, and they'll share about their upbringing. And because of different processes in the family, there was no modeling of good conflict resolution. There was no modeling of uh, close relationships, of... Uh, healthy intimacy, so huge with any kind of use. Now, it's interesting. I was working with somebody who their use was food. Um, they actually ended up in an eating disorder, um, and their background was uh, there was there was a sex addiction in the family and chemical addiction in the background. She was physically abused, sexually abused. And it came out in her eating behaviors from about 12 on. She was actually in a treatment program starting at 12, came to me for sex therapy as a couple. Well, they, their conflict was so high as a couple. Well, that was, they had, she had no modeling, none, zero in the family. So unhealthy 
modeling unhealthy boundaries in the family of origin have a definite impact on all addictive behaviors. You'll get a chaotic and a disengaged family structure. What this means by blurred family boundaries, as in you'll get uh, parents that are overly intrusive, meaning they're just overly involved in every single area, to parents that have really rigid boundaries and there's really strict rules in the house and you're never allowed to go against those boundaries. So, and of course, all the areas of abuse are increased. So there is a huge impact on families. Um, now this is a little bit geared towards if the adults are using, but there's a huge impact both ways, when adults are using and when kids are using. So um, the children that grow up in families with addiction are witnesses to all kinds of legal challenges like police raids, they're separated from their parents, a lack of basic care. Um, so these are some of the stories. This is actually straight out of what you call qualitative research where they actually tell the story. Uh, one of the stories is injecting heroin and rolling joints in front of her child while another parent uh, describes it on how to do it. So he actually saw one parent teaching the other parent how to, how to make the, the heroin joints. Daughter helping replenish them. This is a young girl who she actually, uh, as a small child, was mixing cannabis and tobacco because her father would be angry. He would get mad, so make her mix it. Son sat for nine hours in his room while the police tore his home apart. So this is a police raid, and the child is in the room uh, while it's all going on. While on heroin, one mom had no motivation to cook and just brought home, um, take home as a shortcut. I was working in a school, and I was working with a young man who was 17, 16, 17, 17, and very put together, um, you know, well-kept, in sports, and he came. He didn't, I didn't know why. He just asked for a referral to see the school therapist, started to come see me, and it took about three-quarters of the year. It wasn't until actually early spring. I started seeing him in the fall. It wasn't until the spring that um, he shared that his mom had returned to use. He'd found some of the paraphernalia in the house. She had been clean for a while. And what, he's sitting at my desk right across from me, and he's sharing. I opened up the refrigerator, and there was no food. And he, he's sitting with me, and he just started bawling. And he goes, I just feel like, does she not care about me? Does she not love me? Am I not important to her? Is the drugs more important to her? 17-year-old male adolescent crying. I mean, that was, you know, cause I, have four, I have four teenagers. So it's just, you know, I had to go home going, I love you. You know, <laughs> you're a great kid. You want a popsicle. You know, <laughs> I mean, it's just, it, it's challenging. But this is reality. Um, and this, that's an extreme example in a sense. But all kinds of addiction, when it's the parent in use, creates those moments at, at many different levels. You know, my parent was, I had, I worked with a family where the mom was on meth, and both boys had disabilities, and they grew up, uh, whenever she would use, she would use once a month, uh, dad would leave the home with the boys, go do something fun for the weekend until she was in a better spot, and then they would just continue with life, and then she would use again, he would take them out of the home. So, you know, the impact on those boys is, was huge, right? So, you've got children in the home, you've got the marital relationships, you've got all of the above. Um, when it's the other direction, um, where it's the teens in use, um, 
the level of disruption in the family because then the parents are trying to be parents and they're not sure how to parent and they're not sure if they should kick their kid out or put him in treatment and it's affecting the other families. So I had one family where it was the teenager in use, the dad sexually abusing the daughter, the boy in uncontrollable violent behavior, you know, mom wasn't using, you know, and yet the impact on the family was huge. Uh, well, and we ended up with jail sentences and stuff like that. So all kinds of disruption to the family on multiple levels. So uh, with mother-infant relationships, mothers tend to talk less when they're in the midst of use to their infants, and so that's where you've got reactive attachment issues with use in infancy when they're infants. Low frustration, so if a mother is in use of any kind. Now, this is actually true of behavioral addictions as well as uh, physical uh, chemical dependencies is frustration levels are very problematic. Again, because emotion regulation is at issue. So what you'll see with kids is they'll, they'll take on all kinds of different maladaptive roles where they'll become the, the fighter, they'll, they'll become the one that's blamed, they'll become the scapegoat in the family, they're the one that just uh, is irrelevant, they just step into the background and just disappear because there's so many big problems going on in the family. Often what you'll see is you'll, if, if, it's, if the youth is the um, teenagers, you'll see the parent actually take on all of these pieces. Um, you'll end up with a child that feels like they have to be perfect, um, the super responsible kid, so you'll have that. You know, I have to be, I have to be perfect. I have to be completely responsible because all this chaos is happening in my family. So, one of the pieces is that's difficult. A couple of you brought this up in your questions in between. <laughs> Got my pointer. Is detaching from the? How do you detach from the addictive family member and still have some attachment? Remember, Wolin's five things. Number one was detach from all of the use but then stay moderately connected. Um, and so that's actually when I'm working with people in treatment, I actually work on that exact thing. Okay, so a lot of drinking happens at Christmas. Okay, so you're not going to do Christmas. All right, what can you do? You still want to be, okay, so you want to meet at a restaurant for an hour meal. Somewhere. Okay, great. So you're going to meet at the restaurant for an hour meal, but you're not going to be a part of any of the family activities. So that's moderate connection, but wise detachment from addiction. So that's, that's hard to find, but there are ways where you can not end up in a cutoff relationship, which is highly problematic, and yet uh, still have healthy boundaries. Very challenging, but definitely doable. Um, so when you've got families in treatment, what you'll generally see is parenting skills improve. Again, this is when use is either direction. Communication patterns become healthier. Drinking-related beliefs get addressed. Um, so there's different pieces that are key to family treatment. Make sure that you're dealing with the history of use. Again, either direction, if it's in the uh, younger family members or in the adults. You have to really make sure that support is happening. One thing that happens is if it's the adults in use, they are in AA five times a week. They're in individual treatment. They're in group treatment. They're, they're all this stuff. And so during treatment, they're not even barely around. So one of the biggest factors for why treatment goes sideways is because people don't know how to get the support for their kids. It's actually one of the biggest uh, reasons why people relapse is because they're trying to also get back to parenting and to be involved as a parent. But... Um, 
they, they have to go pay attention to their individual treatment. So it's, again, a very, very difficult balance to make sure that children also, each family member, no matter who it is, needs additional support in the midst of recovery and treatment. Um, so when children are in treatment, it's important that they get some education around what's going on, what are they seeing, so they can put a name to what they're seeing and that they're not the only one. Uh, psychoeducation is goofy, but it's the, one of the biggest things where they go, oh, that's what I've been seeing for the last 10 years, and I've never been able to put my, a name to it. So that's very, very important where, oh, my gosh, it's in the class. People teach this, and I experienced it in my home. All of a sudden, it makes that child a part of a much larger community that understands. So big piece. Enhanced mother-child visitation, effective limit setting. So this is what's happening, especially if the children have been taken out of the home. And then one of the big things for kids, this is partially what, you, um, what I got asked about in the last one, was there are so many conflicts for a child being raised in a home of use because they, they, they feel love, but they also are angry. They feel hate, but they actually admire their parent. They feel guilty. I mean, there's just this royal of different kinds of emotions. And so it's really important that the work uh, that children receive while in treatment is to, to normalize the fact that they both hate and love. Um, the situation I shared with you about with two meth addicts, so much love and much admiration for dad, and dad was the abuser. So in the past. Uh, another situation, a couple that I was working with, dad sexually abused, mom not around, and much love and attachment. And, and, and in their, the 30 years later relationship. Um, so it's like, ugh, they feel ugly and yucky for the fact that they like their parent who did X, Y, and Z to them or who was involved in all those behaviors or they saw them beat their, their, their spouse. So there, there can be a lot of different feelings. And so normalizing those feelings that it's understandable that you'd have this mixture of emotions is a big piece of working with uh, children, not just when they're children in the midst of use, but then I'll often I end up working with an adult child of an alcoholic family or an adult child of somebody who was in, in use. So they're 30 and 40 years old, and they've never worked through the stuff that they, um, that they went through in their childhood. So these are some of the challenges during recovery um, because there's past violence often and past abuse that's happened. There's often been a blurring of boundaries where um, child, children take on parent roles and parents end up acting like children. So the, the boundaries are all messed up. Uh, children might have been, like we said, unattended, neglected. Parents might become unattentive. That, uh, this is really important. When somebody returns after they've been kind of uh, involved in gambling, involved in these addictive behaviors, and then they return and start to parent, what does the other parent do? Often. Yeah. Who do you, excuse me. I've been parenting while you were off using for the last 10 years. You have no right to say that that's how I should handle this. So it's, that is a huge piece that comes up in the, in the midst of recovery is like somebody coming back from a military uh, deployment. Like, you know, I've been doing this all on my own and you're sitting here telling me this, you know. So that's a very big piece on uh, returning to the family, which can actually then bring up more conflicts, which what do what can lead to relapse. So it's lots of different things there. 
Um, I always tell people uh, when they're in treatment with me, initially things are going to get worse before they get better. So, uh, yeah, bitterness, resentment, anger. Um, in the church, we tend to go, you need to forgive, you need to forgive, you need to forgive. Um, not very helpful. <laughs> um, uh, treatment early recovery is one to three years. Middle recovery is like two to six years. Late recovery is five to ten years. Maintenance is after ten years. In other words, they're in early stages of recovery for up to a decade. So to say you're not supposed to feel that way and you should be forgiving isn't super helpful. Yeah. I want you to, uh, at some point address the issue of, you know, the difference between forgiveness and being back in relationship because I feel yeah. like what you're saying is yeah, you can forgive people right. and still keep that boundary in place that's right. necessary because you don't know if this person is going to relapse or right. they're relapsing. Right. I mean, yeah. are you going to touch on that later? Or yeah, when I hit the couples thing, I'm going to show you a couple things on how to deal with that. Yeah, that's a, that's a big one. Um, there's often during recovery, there's all kinds of practical stuff. There's financial stuff. There's transportation issues. There's schedule conflicts. It's affecting, now you've got to start all new rituals and holidays because all of those holidays got, were just completely killed by these different behaviors. Um, family members, um, this is important. Family members sometimes feel the focus was too much on the substance use and not enough on the relationships. So if you've got a teenager in use, you've got the other kids feeling like you paid all this attention to this troubled teenager in our family, but what about me, the good child? So you'll definitely, I mean, on all levels, there's repair that's, that's needed. So some of the techniques uh, that can be used in treatment, I'm hitting this because this is so spe specific to the family, um, is you can do art therapy. You can actually sit in session and work on their schedule. You can work on their boundaries, their routines, their rules. This is straight out of, this is Brown and Lewis. This is the book I told you about, um, The uh, Alcohol Families in Recovery. Uh, this is a big one. When I'm dealing with couples, I end up doing sex therapy because all of that got very destroyed during use. I use a contract. I'm going to show you that in a little bit when I work with couples. I deal directly with the drinking and the drug and behavior. It's very important. And then adolescents need individual therapy to allow, if they're not able to open in front of the parents, to go deeper and confess the secrets. So this is really tricky. Is do you see the same therapist? Meaning, does the adolescent... In the, do, so you have to know what kind of therapist you're going to. Are you seeing a family therapist that will see all the different members of the family and balance uh, confidentiality between the members? Or does the adolescent go to their own therapist and the family therapist sees... Uh, the family as a whole. It depends on the therapist because some some won't do the multi levels. I do, but some don't. And it's and I know why people don't because it's really hard to see an adolescent who's pouring out stuff and you're like, okay, so I'm pretty sure the parents don't know that. And is this something we should bring in? Because I I very openly talk about they're gonna if there's any danger going on that needs to be revealed into the family. And so it's this balance of, you know, how much do you have the kids tell their parents? So it's tricky, and that's why most of the time people separate it, and that's very wise. So very dependent on the individual therapist that you see and on the family and what's best for them. I do want to go back to here. So I was working with a family. Um, dad was in, in the middle of use, in the middle of use, 
and in complete denial. And I'm, they've got four kids, mom, dad, and we're sitting on a table about this size. And we do um, art. So we did some art therapy. Gave them all pens and crayons, and said, "Draw if you could do a portrait of your family, and you can use actual figures, or you can use something artistic like flowers, or you know, you can d- draw it. However, how would you depict your family?" So. <laughs> Dad, all the fam- moms making using all the family members are different flowers, and the kids are drawing the house with the car and the different rooms, and it was very revealing. And Dad goes six six lines. Skinny. Yeah, I did the same with another family, and whew. When you do this right there, you've got months of therapy that you can do just based on the artistic expression. Sometimes people won't say it with words, uh, so they'll say it through art. So art therapy is incredibly helpful both for families. And so we actually, it was so funny because the wife, (laughs) the wife's going, what is that? Right? Because that is how she feels. His drawing, she's like, yep, and she said it. That's how he's been. See right there? He can't even show anything because he hasn't lived any of it. I mean, it's just, woo. So we had to do some couples therapy after that. So it's art therapy for both. So I do a lot of, uh, I do play therapy with children. So art therapy for kids is huge. But actually, it's very beneficial for adults as well. Um, I do a lot of, I do expressive arts. So I use sculpting where you actually sculpt the family. Um, where you're the, the, the family members are the sculptors. So one family, um, I had each of them take turns, and they sculpted how they saw the family. So they're the sculptor, and they're moving everybody around. Here, stand up for a second. And they're doing things like, okay, and you do it without words. <laughs> and... Okay, sit down. So, <laughs> where you literally just tell you. And it was so fascinating because we're doing it and the kids are doing it in every scenario. Mom is. In all of their scenarios. And mom was like, and we sat down, we processed, she goes, am I really that angry? So it was a way for the family to express this is, this is what it's like for us. So there's all kinds of different ways to do therapy um, to draw out the different dynamics that have gone on in the family. Okay? There are a lot of benefits, especially during early. That's the transitional period. Um, you can work on the affectional bonds. You can work on the parenting issues. Um, when people come in for individual treatment, you're only dealing with things at a certain level. When you're do, able to do family therapy, oh, gosh, you're, you're able to deal with so many other levels. Um, how to enhance their family networks, meaning tying families to other families. And so in about two minutes, I'm going to have you guys come on up. Uh, how to promote continuing care post-detoxification. So even if you have teenagers in use, if you have adults in use, either direction, how to create family bonds in the midst of recovery. That's where family treatment can come into play. Um, New patterns of family interactions, because actually you're usually building new rituals, like we said, I said earlier. Significantly reduce substance abuse and enhance treatment engagement. So uh, when people engage in not just 
uh, individual therapy, but family therapy, you have a much higher, uh, much lower rate of recidivism, meaning returning to use. And then, of course, it helps with the traumatic experiences. The greatest chance for successful treatment results from including the adolescent's family in treatment. This is for specific to when the adolescent is the user, where the process is based on the premise that the family system affects the development and maintenance of the adolescent substance abuse. Okay, that doesn't mean that the family is to blame. Family system affects the adolescent substance abuse. It doesn't mean the family's to blame. It just means that when there's use, there is trauma in all members of the family at some level, and you have to address, it is best to address the entire system, not just the user. It's really, really, I mean, when I worked in the prison, and I'm like, gosh, I'm working with these kids. Where's their family? I want to work with the whole family, because now they're going to leave prison, and they're going to go back to those families, right? So how do you help them stay? Because so many of them are like, I never want to use again, I never want to use again. And then we're sending them out of the prison straight back into the very environment that they were in. So family therapy has much, much higher rates of staying out of the legal system and staying away from substance abuse. It doesn't mean it's perfect. It doesn't mean it works perfectly. But much higher rates. Uh, benefits include a more thorough assessment when you do family. Because, oh, my gosh, this is hilarious. When I actually get to have the teenagers in the room with the parents, I'm like, Oh, that was interesting. Can you share a little more about that? I find out stuff that those parents are never going to tell me. Or I got the kid. I worked with one kid who'd been in the middle of uh, marijuana use, and he was on probation. So we did family therapy, and he would get so ticked because his parents would tell on him in session. I did individual with him and then family treatment, and, oh, he hated those family sessions because out would come all the junk that he was hiding in my individual sessions. So, you know... But the great thing is, is then you're working on the youth, uh, the parental dyad. So this was a, this particular family was a um, adolescent and uh, adopt uh, a second marriage. So this was not his, the biological dad that he was living with, and they had so much conflict. And so we actually got to work actively with. I mean, dad literally walked out of treatment a couple times. He was so angry. So we actually got to work with the anger in the family with the adolescent. Uh, and it was the adolescent in treatment, but it was so great because we got to actually work with the entire family. And then also family treatment allows for a reduction in the negative impact of the adolescent substance abuse on the other members because it is. The impact is huge on not just the one person in the family, but all of the different members of the family, and especially the quieter uh, other children in the family. Okay, so can you guys come on up? So Roy and Gina are going to share, and I'm not going to say anything else. Go for it. I'm sorry. Oh. Yeah, go for it. I'll just say right here. Of course. Yep. Um, I'm Gina. My husband, Roy. And we have three kids. Um... Sorry, I mean, this is a lot of process. I mean, just listening, I'm like, wow, a lot of that is like my childhood. A lot of it is like, wow, we, we did a lot of things right in our journey here. Um, but uh, let's see. When our youngest was a freshman, he was on the soccer team. He was doing really well. He actually, as a freshman, made the JV team. So, you know, going to all the games, and I was a soccer mom, and life was good. Our other two boys were really doing well. 
Um, Cameron had just graduated high school. So everything was great. And then on the last, it was the day of the last game, the big game that we were going to play, the rival high school. And I actually had, I worked at that rival high school. So I'd been looking at for that game. I'd been looking forward to it all season. I even wore green to my blue school. A lot of people didn't know that. <laughs> um, but, you know, and then halfway through the day, I get a phone call. And it's the assistant principal telling me that my son had just gotten caught walking back onto campus and he was high. And, you know, my, my bottom sort of dropped out. Uh, but, you know, then, you know, you go, you go through all the stuff. You know, you show up at the high school, you're crying. and um, I was humiliated. I, you know, of course, you go through all those those feelings, like, where did I go wrong? What, what did I do? What, how did this happen? Um, I actually ended up going to the game that night, and I just stood by myself at the fence, just sobbing at, like, my broken dreams, but at, at now, now what? Well, we were really lucky. Um, I won't go into it too much, but we were really lucky that um, Tanner was offered what, what in, this, in the PUSD system they call a state put, where you have to sign a contract and you have to do a list of all these things, and one of those things was you had to go to support group. You had to do one-on-one counseling and a support group. So for us, that was a huge blessing. And in that support group, I'll just touch again lightly here, I learned that it was okay that I am a good parent, but I don't know how to parent a child who does drugs. So now I was going to get what, I was going to get a plan. I was going to be able to move forward with that. Um, a, a lot of it is, be, for us anyway, I realized that we needed to change our parenting to meet his needs. I grew up in an alcoholic family. Uh, I was like that child that you said, don't they even love me? You know, I did drugs. I started doing drugs when I was 12. I'm sorry. I'm a little nervous, so I can't. Um, you know, I started drugs when I was 12, and I didn't stop until I became a disciple at 23. And it was God that filled that hole in me and never looked back. And we worked really hard to make sure we had, you know, a loving family. Now, he is the boy's stepdad. And he's a great dad. He's a great man. He's a huge blessing to our family. But it hasn't been easy on him. You know, the boys were 6, 8, and 10 when we got married. But now they're teenagers. And they're defiant. And they're teenagers. <laughs> I don't know. Not said. <laughs> I know. How much time? Um, but... Because of my family history, again, both of my parents were alcoholics. All three of my siblings now are addicts. I'm the lucky one. So I take all of this, you know, when my son gets caught smoking pot, I'm like, oh, yeah, this is, you know, we got to nip this in the butt. This is not going to, this cannot continue. So we started in a, a, our group support therapy, uh, family and children there. And we also did one-on-one. Um, and and it went really well for for a while. I mean, Tanner was he turned things around. I probably shouldn't say his name. 
Well, anyway, you guys, most of you know him anyway. But, um, uh, you know, he, he always had behavioral issues. Very strong-willed child. And I, uh, it was always difficult with him. So when we started this, his behavior changed, too. He became so pleasant to be around. But it was temporary, you know. Then he would go back to the drugs. And it, it took its toll on our relationship um, because it was hard to have an, you know, a child using drugs in the house. Uh, sometimes I would want to be a little sentimental, and he would want to be hardline. Sometimes I would want to be hardline, and he would be a little more, you know, Sentimental. Not too often. Not, not right. too often. <laughs> <laughs> just, just <laughs> yes, it, it's true, um, and, and that's why it's good to have that that third party, that mediator, um, to to go to. Uh, again, we'll talk about more of that later. But you know, the thing the thing is, is that our son, he was a, is a master manipulator. Um, kids who do drugs just want to do more drugs, and they will do and say whatever it takes to make that happen. And there were times when he, I literally thought I was crazy. Mm-hmm. So, again, just having that support, that person to be able to go to, the, the other moms that were in the group, to be able to say, no, Gina, you're not crazy, he's manipulating, and and you're you're on the right track. Don't, don't fall for it. Um, A lot of why we completely agreed to, to talk today is, you know, when this happened to me, I didn't really feel like I had a lot of people to talk to. Hmm. I, I felt alone in my shame and my humiliation. And I have learned, and I'm still learning, that it is just, it's kind of like being a disciple. You know, you, you share your faith because you want others to have faith. But we share our experience because we want others to know that they are not alone. That yeah. there are answers. That there is support out there. That, um, that you know, when you have to have that tough love, there's someone to go to and cry on their shoulder. And it's not always going to be my spouse because sometimes we're not in sync and we're getting therapy too. <laughs> um, but, I mean, for me, that's, that's my main goal here right now, is to, to help people know that they're not alone in this process. And that, you know, um, when kids do drugs, it's not always because you're a bad parent. Amen. Top back to follow So I'm going to go through my notes, and I'm going to try to find a couple of wife does a great job of, of expressing herself, and I, I'm going to try to do the same. So, I, so through this, I, and I'm the emotional, I'm the crybaby, so, so I think if I throw it out there, then maybe I won't be as emotional, so let's, <laughs> let's just try, but when you share from your heart, I, but, but I, even before this happened, uh, I think Gina and I had a very strong relationship. Uh, we enjoyed being together. We like having fun. Uh, Come on, you can do it. Yeah, I'll be all right. Just give me some. 
it's got to get past the hurdle. But, but anyway, but but it's it's what this you know I wanted to share kind of how it impacted us as a couple a little bit. And and one of the biggest things is is stress. You know the the not knowings. The I, uh, you know how how are we going to get help? Uh, did we do something wrong? How do we prevent it? Yeah. yeah. We had two, two other boys, too, that kind of ended up going through the same thing. And they're doing well now, but it's just it's just a lot. But, <laughs> I'm so funny. But anyway, uh, but the big one was, is it going to tear us apart? Not us. <laughs> so, you know, the stress, you know, we, we kind of hit that stuff head on. We got good help. We got good counseling. Uh, but we decided to protect our relationship, to take care of each other. Uh, some of the stuff that we did for that, uh, as far as the taking care of each other, was being patient with each other, being kind to each other, and being patient with each other. <laughs> so, so, yeah. I think he needed a little more patience. <laughs> but, but, but it's really taking a step back and saying, we're going to protect this relationship. We can't do anything about what's happening there, but we can do something about what's happening here. And there was just times where we kind of just had to get out of Dodge. You know, kids, where are you going? We don't know, but we're not going to be here. And, and just, just acknowledging that that it's not healthy to be in that spot for us, that everything is built around us. If we can't succeed, if we can't be successful, if we can't be loving, if we can't be nurturing, then then the rest isn't going to work. And so, I, you know, I, I think the other emotion, the other thing is, I, is just being emotionally exhausted. And just feeling drained all the time. I remember sitting in groups sometimes and stuff would be coming out and the, the kids would be there and I would just go, wee like a roller coaster. You know, because you're just along for the ride with some of that stuff. And, and just day after day after day. And that's where the uh, having good counseling and having uh, friends that, you know, I've got an extra neighbor that I would take the crash out in and go talk to Jim and just kind of, you know, express stuff with him. And he didn't judge and he just kind of listened to me and he was my sounding board. And, and that way I wasn't lashing out and I wasn't taking out. But I I think, I, you know, one of the things that, that I want to share, and I'll, I'll probably talk about it a little bit more later, that going through it, uh, that helped us have strength is, is like I said, you kind of look at yourself and you say, did I do something wrong or what did we do wrong or what did we do? And, and we had, I think early on, I, I kind of work off analogies, pictures in my mind, and that's how I remember stuff and I think about it. And I, you know, I'm an electrician and I've gone to help people out before and I go to their house and just friends or whatever, and they tell me what the problem is. They couldn't fix it, so they call me over. And I say, okay, well, I'm going to start looking over at this, and I think the problem could be here. And they go, oh, no, no, I don't think the problem's there. Okay, well, you called over an electrician, and that might not be where the problem is, but my experience tells me that's where I'm going to start. And, and in my point... My point with that is that, you know, if you get good help, at some point, you just have to let go and you have to trust and you have to take the advice, you have to follow, you have to execute, you have to support. But that helped our relationship, to be able to have that, that helped our relationship. So, I think, I think that's all I've Amen. Yay!
Lori gets to join the, what's the club called? Cry Babies Club. Yeah. Um, so I really appreciate their openness and their vulnerability. Um, you'll notice some of you, your stories might be different. The actual way that addictions plays out in your family might be different, right? Uh, as far as who is the user, what the actual type of use is. However, so many of the emotional and relational dynamics that they shared can be quite common as far as the stress that it causes, the, the blame and the guilt that comes out, the challenge with communication, the need to up your support network um, of people that are supportive to you. So um, those dynamics are, are common to good care when you're in the middle of it, whether it's your child that's using or it's your spouse or it's yourself. So and in specific, if you are or know someone or your child's going to be a child of an, an adult child of an alcoholic, um, the reality is um, currently 28 million children live in households where somebody is using. One in four children are exposed. 52% of alcoholic parents raising their children come from homes where one or both parents had a drinking problem. Um, what you'll notice in Gina's story is the skipping of generations. So often what you'll see is, uh, my parents did, I don't, my children do. So you'll see that sometimes. Um, so that's very, you know, the numbers of individuals sitting in this room that have been affected by some kind of use disorder is very, very high. So what stuff, the stuff they just mentioned, anxiety, depression, suicide, eating disorders, early pregnancies, out-of-wedlock pregnancies, confusion and unable to predict parent behavior, anger, and externalized conflict. So, poor peer relationships. This is specific to the adolescent, number of illnesses and accidents, school problems, involvement with the police, psychiatric psychosocial dysfunction, tobacco and nicotine dependence, alcoholism. So, this is, this is the kids who their parents were users. <laughs> All right? This is the kids whose parents were users. And this is how it affected them. So you'll notice that they end up themselves in conflictual relationships and trouble with the law. So, again, that's the intergenerational piece. Um, often you'll have, we already talked about that, role reversals will happen. Uh, the social isolation is really big. Um, there, um, I worked with one girl that the parents were, the police would come to the house to deal with the domestic violence that came up. And so she swore she would never have anybody over. So she never had anybody into her home because she was so embarrassed about what was happening in her home. So you'll get a lot of social isolation, embarrassment, suffering from a lack of social and peer relationships. Um, the, the emotional deprivation to the child, and of course the parent is unable to tend to their needs. So what you'll have with kids is you'll have a little bit like we tapped in earlier. You'll have either it's the kid that runs. They themselves become addicted to drugs. So they, they, in order to, to run away from or hide, they become super involved in outside activities in the home, blocking all the memories and the emotional withdrawing. Um, you'll get the child that's super defiant. They cope by being aggressive, rebellious, and acting out. They're the problem children. Then you've got the perfect child who strives to be perfect, never do anything wrong, and the super coper. It's parents parentified and super responsible. And it's, it's interesting. The, these, these are me, growing up in an alcoholic family. 
Um, all of my siblings were the ones that got in trouble, and I wasn't. I was the straight-A student. You know, um, I wasn't the helper. I didn't help my family. I just So I did a lot of the interesting flight. I didn't flight to use. I didn't go to use. But I definitely got involved in everything else that would keep me out of the conflict going on between my parents. So um, it's interesting. When I did the... Um, the sculpting that I told you about the family where the mom was angry all the time, the uh, younger daughter, you know where she was in every scenario? In every sculpt that the family did, she was in the bedroom by herself in every one of the family sculptures. So knowing that, who's, how are the different family members reacting and, and how, is it, how, are they, how are they coping? This is just another way of looking at it, and I'm not going to go into it right now. You can check that on the slides. Um, so, adult children of alcoholics, identifying the problems includes difficulty with intimate relationships. This is when they um, become adults. Lack of trust, fear of loss of control, fear of abandonment, low self-esteem, harsh and relentless self-criticism. So, this is particular to now the person's an adult. They're in intimate relationships, and now they're exhibiting all of these problems in their adult relationships. Very common. You can actually read a lot of different books and articles on being an adult child. Most of the literature is on alcoholism, but actually it applies to all addictive uses. When you read those books, they, they apply pretty much across addictions. Um, all right. This is important. I told you about the five factors. This is Wolin and Wolin. I love this. Seven resiliencies. Uh, these are folks that in the middle of use, the individual, what Gina and Roy pointed out is, okay, he said, I, I, we have to take care of us in no matter what. So sometimes it's just you. I have to take care of me no matter what. So these are the, the things that they found with people that came out of things on the other end positively, the ability to gain insight. So gaining understanding for whatever the struggles are and, and your own personal growth. Becoming independent uh, in a healthy way, not in a cutoff way. Healthy relationships, somebody that is an initiator, creativity and humor. This is so interesting. So these are people that are very resilient no matter what's going on. They come out of it. They bounce back. This is the ability to bounce back. That if they've got good humor and creativity, very helpful. And, oh, notice that one right there. Okay, that's where the church comes into play and your beliefs in the Bible come into play is um, really upping uh, morality. Yes. I was listening to Roy and Gina and, and listening to the piece about self-care, and it makes me think about, you know, what is the greatest commandment? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love others as yourself. Yeah. But if you don't love yourself, yeah. if you're not doing self-care, yeah. you're not going to love other people very yeah. well, yeah. and it's going to impact your relationship with God. Yeah. So I'm wondering if at some point in the day you're going to talk about self-care or... Um, I tap it a teeny have. bit. They're going to actually share again in the next session. Okay, um, so address a little bit about self-care. And, yeah. Because I think, you know, mm -hmm. if 50, 52% of the population has been affected by some right. kind of drug use or addictive behavior. It tells us that 50 tells me that 52% of the nation yeah. struggles with self-love. Yeah, yeah. You know, right. so, um, and if we're going to be a church that loves others as we love ourselves, we better do a lot of self-loving. Yeah. 
Yeah, the, um, it's actually one of the biggest pieces that helps people come out of, you'll notice how many of these are just wise, good choices for the individual. So that healthy, yes. Oh, I never turned it off. Yes, I'm recording. Yes, thank you. So, all right. I'm just going to show you some different pieces to family treatment. This is called the multidimensional approach, um, where you include adolescent, psychological, emotional, physical needs. It's personalized if there's a dual diagnosis, and it's dealing with each one of these areas. Okay, there's also, um, uh, I'm going to come, uh, okay. Hmm, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm like, which one am I on? We're going to hit more of that in uh, the next one on treatment. So, specific to the marital couple. <laughs> yeah, you know, one of the biggest things, you know, what you hit on, Ryan Gina, that, that the depth of the need to have great communication. <laughs> she says, do you mind if I strap your phone to my forehead so I can pretend you're looking at me when I talk? You know, um, yeah, there we go. What, often what happens with couples is you'll get one that's under-involved and one that's over-involved, what you call the pursuer, the distancer in therapy. That's really important to address that piece. Um, when one parent is the one that's doing all the work and the other one, the way they cope with the issues is by just disappearing. One of the other things is addiction is often uh, involved, involves traumatic bonding. What that means is that all their good memories revolve around use. They, um, and this happens a lot because I deal a lot with intimacy with couples, that the only time they had good sex was when they took drugs or when they drank alcohol and were drunk. So it's what you call traumatic bonding. And it's important to help couples establish healthy bonding, not around use, where they can actually have that. It's not, gonna, it's, it's not, it's not like I'm going to try to repeat the same highs that we got there, but how to have a healthy bonding and healthy intimacy and wonderful memories um, outside of the times of use. And then big, big one is communication, hence the, the funny little slide before that. So um, a common belief in codependency is a lifelong co-addiction. Okay, this is actually most people that are in a couple. Uh, one is called the user and one's called the codependent. It's actually not uh, uh, always a very helpful way of uh, labeling the individuals in the relationship. Um, in any family member. The word codependent has so many ugh, negative connotations, like you're the sick one. And so it's a, a rather blaming stance. Um, I love the book, Some Sat in Darkness, but Some Sat in Darkness definitely takes a, a blaming stance towards the codependent. They use that word very strongly. Um, so I, I, I don't encourage that kind of language because I don't think it's actually helpful to the process. However, it is really important for the other member in the couple to realize the areas where they enable and allow certain behaviors. So treating the whole family, uh, I already hit that. 
couples are sometimes couples therapy is sometimes considered a threat to recovery. This is really important. The person who's in individual treatment, they're doing really good, they're doing really good, they're doing really good, then they step into couples treatment, like I said, at about two and three years, and all of a sudden, now their spouse in treatment is going about all the terrible things that they've done. And so you have to be aware that you have to up their care level. If they're going to go into couples treatment, you have to up the care level for the user and the codependent, the spouse, the whatever word it gets used, because of all that it brings up. Because it can be. It actually can cause use. Yeah. You can probably also say that for family therapy. Yes, very, very much so. Yes, very, very much so. Couples to two families. Yeah. Bowen is a, a, a certain type of therapy where um, if uh, I am not very individuated, which means I can stand on my own two feet pretty well, I tend to marry somebody who also doesn't stand on their feet very well. And so that's important to pay attention to. Bowen therapy will specifically focus on what you call differentiation, the ability to be my own person in the midst of an intimate relationship. So, yes, yeah, so some of these slides are straight from my teaching in university. So you'll see language that's like, what does that mean? Um, specific challenges, uh, sexual intimacy and vulnerability are hugely affected by use. Drinking may have been the only time where they had tenderness and affection, sexual problems, like impotency and, and ejaculation dysfunction come up. And the non-using spouse, this is a big one, may become tired of waiting for the recovering spouse to become available again and marriages break up. Uh, the greatest number of breakups happen during recovery, not during use, during recovery. The greatest number of breakups happen when people are in treatment. It is, remember, it's, there's almost more stuff that's coming up during treatment. So often what happens for the, the spouse is, I'm the one that protects the family, I'm the one that keeps the kids going, and all of a sudden the partner tries to re-engage because they stop using and then things blow up and you have a lot of divorces during treatment. So it can be different than that, but that's just the common percentages. Other specific challenges to the couple is that um, the recovering spouse feels like their addicted spouse is no longer any fun because now they're all serious and now they're all strict in the house and they were more fun when they were using. Very common scenario, which that may then lead to, lead to relapse. Couples may need to delay working on the tougher issues in the marriage relationship until recovery is later. That's, so that's actually pretty common um, and not necessarily a bad choice. So this is straight out of the book I mentioned. I abandoned my own child to my own need for AA, the challenge of prioritizing the needs of the individual in recovery. It's just such a, a balance. Um, and how do you still take care of kids and family members when you're trying to get your own treatment? Um, I'm going to talk about communication a little bit more later. The, the facilitating forgiveness and trust, big one. Significant others may need individual help during the code addiction. That means that that's the, the spouse. They may need their own treatment while their spouse is in treatment. In fact, usually they should. The co-addict sometimes fears abandonment. will accept that this is very big. will accept behaviors that others may find unacceptable participating in sexual activities. They find uncomfortable, such as viewing pornography, swapping sexual partners. This is specific to sexual addiction, but it actually comes out in all the different uses, where in order to keep my spouse, I will do things. I don't want them to leave. My spouse is a sex addict, and so I will perform in certain sexual ways only to keep them 
in the you know married to me, so they don't, don't go other places. So that's why actually treatment for specifically sexual addiction, I don't ever tr I don't treat the individual if they come. I refer them. I actually treat the couple, and so. I think when people come, uh, they actually need both. They need individual and couple. I just do the couple's work. And then I send people and I refer them for individual treatment, specifically with, with sex therapy. Um, so it's, it's very helping the spouse not give in to certain behaviors because they're frantically trying to keep the relationship <coughs> is, a, is a big piece of couple's therapy. So um, I want to show you something here. Um, this one's in here because sometimes, uh, well, just watch it. Hey, hey, Gray, get in on some of this. What's she doing? Just laying out on the buffet now? This is supposed to be for the week. Well, put some more. Uh oh. You can look hungry. I'll heat up the seat. Listen, Bob, when you babysitting, did you change the twins' pajamas? Yeah, they're over here. I wanted to treat some of those old spots. We have a washing machine, Bob. Yeah, I know, but stubborn stains need special care. Maybe you can take a class on that. <laughs> I gotta go to grandparenting class at 3 o'clock. <laughs> Today we're learning got your nose and pull my finger. <laughs> Make sure you don't miss the summer on moving to Florida. <laughs> <laughs> Put the hell is this? I'm not writing for ice cream yet. This is our tax refund check. It was stuck to the bottom of the ice cream. It's been on my back for a month telling me that I lost it. I'm not the one who eats ice cream in this house. Oh, you eat ice cream. Tofuti, I eat tofuti. You tell your friends you eat tofuti, but then you eat my ice cream. Take a look at the tofuti. There's not a dent in the tofuti. If I do eat ice cream, and I'm not saying that I do, I put it in a bowl like a person, not on the table where it gets stuck to an important check that somebody accuses me of losing. You know, in class, you were just doing this. Why can't you just admit this is your fault? Because I don't lose things, right? I'm organized. Not organized. Insane. <laughs> Labeled pieces of string too small to use. Tied <laughs> together into a noose. I gotta be able to get down. Yeah, I got a step stool for you. <laughs> Just listen here for a second, wait. So, Dad, you you think Mom's being unfair? That's right. It's always my fault when she can't find something. Because I work like a dog to keep this place straight, and he messes it up with all his projects. I framed a project. <laughs> so, what do you think that's being inconsiderate? Have you met your father? What about your consideration? Do I ever get any thanks for all the stuff I do around here? Like what? What is it you do? Well, didn't I fix the thing? <laughs> so Dad's feeling unappreciated. That's right. Oh, come on. I don't appreciate you. How do I know? Devin, every dad isn't here. Thank you. Oh, he wants thank you. <laughs> this isn't thank you? <laughs> I guess mom's saying actions speak louder than words. That's very good, Brandon. But sometimes we need to hear the words. Yeah. I need words. And I don't need words? <laughs> I'm sorry the check got stuck to the chubby hubby. <laughs> <laughs> You know, this is just, this is even 
not even smack in the middle of addictive use, right? But the purpose of this is just to talk about, it is so hard. And he's sitting there, he's taking this class, right, on how you're supposed to communicate, and he's trying to help them and, you know, giving them all of the pointers. It's, it's very challenging to help couples in conflict, especially when the conflict is doubly affected by all of the trauma of use. And so, hence, a good chunk of the time that I spend working with couples is working on uh, bringing back intimate connection and dealing with conflict resolution. <laughs> so that's me. That's the therapist. I'm, I'm, I'm hand trying to go, so what she's trying to say is, right? Okay. So um, the thing with the, this is the common word, so I'm just going to use it. I don't always use it as the codependent is. Recognizing that they're sometimes behaving in a manner that actually makes the person continue in their abuse. Enabling their, they're doing enabling behaviors, and that might be an issue of them, their own stuff about why they don't want to be abandoned and pieces like that. Um, yeah, this is very Bowen language, actually, enmeshment and fusion, where they themselves don't have very good boundaries around their relationship. This is a big one. Um, this is what I hear in my office. I can't tell you how many times I've heard this. And I actually tell people ahead of time I don't keep secrets. In other words, if there's something that is shared in our individual appointments that is detrimental to the relationship, then at some point it's going to need to be shared. And I won't share it. You will. Well, this, I, even after I explain that, I'll get that. So you're not going to tell him that, right? So, again, we talked about that earlier about how secrets and family relationships uh, is really problematic. So, uh, but the biggest thing right now as far as codependency is it's a term that actually has kind of gotten out of use, although you'll see it in almost all of the, all of the books out there. So, this is actually some of the specific work that I do with couples um, when they're in the middle of use. And I use this for all forms of use, um, literally all forms of addiction. Is Number one, I'm focused on helping them rebuild trust, reduce conflict, and uh, how to put rewards into their relationship to help with abstinence. So one of the first things that I do, especially with uh, drug and alcohol use and sexual addiction, is I put into practice what I call the daily trust conversation. This is straight out of behavior couples therapy for alcoholism. So this is what it looks like. Oh, I'll just show you. This is what it looks like. I have been drug and alcohol free for the last 24 hours, and I plan to remain drug and alcohol free for the next 24 hours. Thank you for listening and being supportive of my effort. And the spouse says, thank you for staying drug and alcohol free for the last 24 hours and let me know if I can be of any help. Awesome. This is the first thing I give them to do when they come in my door. Because they don't even know how to talk about the use, especially when it's around sexual addiction. You know, how do we even talk about this? So this is just the very simple piece that I start with, is I have been free from... Uh, looking at anything for the last 24 hours. I am not going to use for the next 20. We're not going to view anything for the next 24 hours. So it's a daily, and this is the conversation they have to have every day. The user always starts it, always initiates it. it and if they don't, then the after, if they've missed two, then the spouse call, is supposed to call me. So if the, if the user doesn't do it for two days in a row, they're supposed to call me and tell on them. So we set that up super early on. And that the only response of the spouse is, thank you so much for sharing it with me. Let me know if I can be helpful. Uh-huh. I had a question because this brings up issues of confidentiality, church discipline. I mean, you have somebody who's an addictive pattern and you're trying to get them out of the addictive pattern. And how does that play into... Well, 
I'm going to tell my Bible talk leader who's going to tell my family group leader who's going to tell the church leaders he's not repenting. I mean, that kind of thing. I mean, mm-hmm. I don't know at what mm-hmm. point it becomes... So I'm going to... I'm actually going to address that. Let me show you what the contract looks like. And just So what, what do we actually do? Ah, maybe I didn't stick it on here. Uh, so the next piece that I do is I actually lay out a contract where each individual makes their own action plan on what they're going to do in their own uh, recovery. So who are their supportive relationships going to be? Who are they? And so then they end up sharing it with each other. And so that addresses that piece is who are your go-to people and does your spouse feel good about your go-to people? Um, and when do you call? So when you're pulled to use or as the spouse, when you're noticing that they're about to use or you're seeing that they're, being, they're doing isolating behaviors or you see them being gone for a few hours and you're wondering what's going on, what are you going to do? What's your action plan as the couple, as the, as the spouse, uh, when those things come up that keep you both safe in confidentiality issues but also safe in your relationship so the contract, I start actually off with this is the very first thing I give them. Then we actually do the action plans and in individual sessions. They bring them in and we make it into a contract that both of them sign and they sign it with me. Um, and then that's the basis. Actually, what's interesting is when I was taking, uh, so I took 32 couples through a sex therapy research study. And um, I, um, this was for sex therapy, right? And I did individual sessions right at the get-go. Uh, three-quarters of the men were using um, pornography. These are all Christian men. were using pornography. And their wives didn't. Most of them, their wives didn't know. And I was like, <sighs> I'm here to do sex therapy. I have six months to finish this study so that I can write my dissertation and graduate. It slowed. I, I had to add about uh, two to three months of therapy uh, to the whole process. So it actually took me a bit longer to be done because... I then put this into practice with every couple. They had to actually go into have daily discussions. They had to put together contracts. They had to go into care because there was no way I was going to work on sexuality when there were betrayals and violations happening in the relationship. So I, I rolled my eyes not because it was bad to do that, but this was because it was my dissertation study. You can come to my private practice and I'll do this with any time, but not today. You know, actually, it was probably one of the biggest growing points for me as the therapist. I'm actually really grateful for the work that I got to do around that piece because um, it honed my own understanding and skills. But the reality was the level of secrets that were happening in the relationship, I make it, not all therapists work this way, but I have a no secrets policy. Some therapists will keep the secret, and um, I don't. I say you have to, if it's detrimental to your marriage, you have to share it with your spouse, or I can refer you to another therapist. And so, I, I, and then I'll ask the spouse, so do you feel like I just took your arm and shoved it behind your back? Yes. I feel like you forced me. And then one couple, that that's what he said at the end of therapy, he goes, I'm really glad you twisted my arm, you know, because he didn't want to tell her. So now this is true of, I've got couples where it's not a sexual addiction, it's they're, they've, they've uh, been stuffing the little bottles that they've been buying and they've been hiding them in different parts of the house. So the lies and the hiding can be in whatever type of use, it's gambling, food, where they're hiding, they're pushing wrappers down into the trash can to hide the wrappers, they're um, eating when no one's around, they're gambling when nobody sees it. So the hiding of the different behaviors, this is the first piece, is how to start talking about it. Yes? With eating, does the client, they've already been taught, like, how much to eat? I mean, because eating is something you can do, but how much is Right. Same problem with sexual behaviors, actually, is because, you know, you're still going to be engaging, and it's not an abstinence role. 
Um, what I do with eating behaviors and eating disordered, and I had to learn this over time, is if I'm doing couples therapy, in the same way with all the other addictive processes, they have to be seeing an individual therapist for their eating, disordered eating. I call it disordered eating. So they actually either have to see a nutritionist that specializes in um, eating disorders so that they're getting, because some nutritionists can actually cause the eating to get worse because they don't, they don't have an, enough awareness of uh, the specifics that come with eating disorders. So I send them to a really good nutritionist or to another therapist, then they have to see that person regularly in order for us to do the couple's work. Yeah, because that's huge uh, with any kind of addictive behaviors, including eating. Okay, so, uh, okay, this is very important. For the couple, often what happens is, the first few years, remember, it's more traumatic, and so what happens when they get triggered? Um, what that means is there's sometimes what stuff happens is, okay, so this person is in recovery. They're doing good. They haven't looked at pornography. They haven't used uh, alcohol or cocaine. They haven't done these behaviors. But there's all of this attachment injury that's happened, right? And so I teach them how to have healing conversations and how to respond to triggers. We do the whole you need to forgive thing. So this is actually what I teach people to do is there's a big difference between holding a record of wrongs and uh, dealing with triggers in the relationship. So, for instance, if there has been pornographic use or if there's been affairs, I worked with one couple literally in my office. She says one of the hardest things that happened is he reached for his phone. He picked up his phone, and this is a use that uh, he was done with all sexual addiction behaviors for a couple of years, right? And they're at home. He picks up his phone to look at it, and she gets flooded, with all the stuff she felt during use. So one of the things is, is that he then says stuff like, when are you ever going to get over this? Okay? <laughs> this happens a lot. And so what I teach people to do is how to respond to triggers because there's a big difference between getting over it and forgiving and what do you do. Um, use creates traumatic memories in the body. And when you get triggered, you have to, if you're going to have connection between the two of you, then how do you together work through a trigger? The first thing, so this is what I teach the spouse who was the offender, whatever that offense was, is the first thing they do is say, they validate and say, so when I picked up the phone, all the stuff that happened between us came up and all the stuff that I've done came up and just flooded you. Yes. Second thing, ownership. Well, that makes sense because, you know, I did some really terrible things. And so this one action bring all that back to you. And I did do those things that brought you back to this point right now. Apologizing, like, and I am so sorry that the things that I did 10 years ago, 2 years ago, 2 months ago, come up for you right now in this moment. And then there's a reassurance, I can spell, is <laughs> to say, you know what, I'm really glad, this is part of the validating, I'm really glad you told me. And I want you to know that I actually, I haven't looked at anything for the last week, month, year. I'm not planning to, and I'd be happy to show you. Here, why don't you go ahead and take a look at my phone. This is a healing conversation. That's really key to couples therapy, is teaching them how to talk openly about when the triggers happen so that there is a 
a reattachment, a healthy reattachment that can occur. Okay, I'm just going to quickly show you some resources. Um, is that the correct time? Yeah. Oh, I went 15 minutes over. Yeah. Okay, we'll have a very short. Yeah, sorry. Okay. These are some resources. I The whole time I was like, wait, what time is that? Okay, some resources. You can look at them when you get my slides. 